sacred and devotional life all converge into the same place. It, it's the same person. It's integrated. And so I think the challenge for you and the challenge for me is this, is that every area of our life, every compartment of our life is integrated around, connected to, and flows out of our relationship to Jesus Christ. And I believe that's one of the things that in John's version of the Great Commission that we're looking at today, I believe that's one of the things he really emphasizes for us, is that there is not meant to be this mission trip, mission event Christian who then goes back to life Christian, but that it's all an integrated whole, that our life and our witness, that it all is woven together. And so with that, let's, let's move in. We're going to be in John chapter 20. We're rapidly approaching the end of our series in John. We've had, this will be the 45th message. Uh, we've got one more next week, and, and then we'll have gone through John. And today we're going to get the Great Commission in John, and today we're going to get the purpose that John wrote this book for us uh, as we do that. And so we've, one thing I do want to keep in perspective, because for us it's been, I don't know, three months that we've been dealing with about four days in the life of Jesus. Uh, and so we started with the arrest and then the trial and then the trial and then the crucifixion and the two thieves and the soldiers casting lots and all the fulfillment of, of prophecy that, that came into this, this prophetic picture of Jesus being the Messiah, unmistakably being the Christ that was promised. And so we've gone through all of that and that was in the life of Jesus literally like three days ago and then four days ago with the arrest. And so now we come to, last week, the resurrection. And Jesus, um, the first uh, bookends that John wants to look at is the life of Mary of Magdalene. And so Mary's the first one at the tomb, and, and John's concerned with filling out her picture as opposed to telling us who all is at the tomb, filling out this picture of Mary so that he can end that section by being uh, Mary being the first witness to the risen Christ while she's weeping in a garden, while she's longing and agonizing to do that last bit of honor to Jesus' dead, what she thinks is dead body, is the very moment that Jesus interact, intersects her life and she sees the risen Christ. And then right in the middle of those two accounts is this idea of John seeing an empty tomb and empty grave clothes and believing. And seeing and believing become the key themes throughout this resurrection appearances or the resurrection accounts of John, seeing and believing, seeing and believing. And that will carry into today as well. And the last thing that Jesus says to Mary is, go to my brothers. They're no longer his friends. They're no longer his servants. They're his family. And then he says to them, tell them, I am ascending to my father, and he's now your father too. To my God, and now he's your God too because of the work of the cross and the work of the resurrection. Which then leads into our account today. And it says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, peace be with you. And he showed them his hands and he showed them his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And so Jesus said again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so, even so I am sending you. And he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness, it is withheld. Now Thomas, who was one of the twelve 
who was called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the disciples came to him and they said, we have seen the Lord. And he said, unless I see in his hand the print of the nails and put my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And then eight days later, the disciples are inside again. And Thomas is with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and he stood in the midst of them and he said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here and see the print of the nails. Put your hand out and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas said, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Do you believe now that you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written down in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you would have life in his name. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray that the peace that Jesus pronounced over his disciples would be a peace you pronounce over us. That we would be whole. That we would be mended. That we would be full. And that we'd be whole, mended, and full of Jesus. And I pray that the commission that he declared over his disciples would be declared over us with fresh and new power. That we are sent people. We're not sent for just mission trips. We're not sent for just church services. We're not sent to just get together. We are sent for every moment of our life to show what Jesus is like in real people's lives. And then to share what Jesus is like with our lips. And so God, would you give us a fresh commitment, a fresh welling up of your spirit within us. To be people who live like we're sent. Where every area of our life is filled with our relationship to Jesus. Would you start with me? Would you move through us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we get into the text, it it talks about it was that day and it was the first day of the week. And so we're we're still on that same morning. Mary Mary Magdalene that morning has just encountered the risen Lord. She has just come to the disciples several hours ago and said, I have seen Jesus. And you know how they responded? And Luke, it tells us. It seemed like she was babbling idle tales to them. All right, so we're still on that day. We're still three days removed from the crucifixion. It's, it's still all right there compressed in time in these, these few days of events that we've been covering for some weeks now. And so we move from Jesus' encounter with Mary where she saw the Lord to now his encounter with his disciples. And what do we find in them? We find that the doors are locked and the disciples are in a room. And we know why they're in the room. Why? Because they're afraid of the Jews. And they should be. Right? They just stirred up and manipulated a Roman governor named Pilate. Strong on him to get the result they wanted to kill Jesus. Because Jesus' ministry in their mind was so threatening that Jesus had to be killed. He had to be taken off the scene. They were even a few chapters ago like, we've got to kill this guy Lazarus too. Because if, if people keep seeing Lazarus, they'll keep believing in Jesus. Like, they're ready to make a clean slate. And so what the disciples know is that if, 
is what if the authorities are thinking about this straight, what they know is that if, I, if, if they can come and get these ten guys off the scene, then this movement that Jesus started is gone. All of its leaders are gone, and now Jesus is just going to be a, faint, a fading memory in the life of the Jewish people, and we can move on. And so they're, they're shut down in this locked door hiding because they're afraid that the next knock on the door is going to be the Jewish authorities taking them out, wiping clean the memory of Jesus from key people. And so that's one of the reasons that, that John reports for us, the doors were locked. But you know another reason John's uh, reporting this to us? And he reports it to us twice in the text. It's because he wants to show us something. It's functioning a different way in John's mind. He wants to show us that through the reality of the locked door that we are seeing a supernatural, a new body of Jesus coming on the scene. And so he's showing the miraculous or the supernatural nature of the body of Jesus that he can pass through grave clothes that we saw last week and he can pass through open doors and he can appear wherever he wants to appear. And so it's this new kind of body. It's this supernatural body that, that is being reported to us by John. And so it's funny. We see this, these two things playing out in this text. On one hand, we see John unmistakably tying the crucified body of Jesus to the resurrected body of Jesus. And so just a few verses, like he shows them his hands. Well, thousands and thousands of people were crucified on crosses. They all got crucified through their hands. But there was a unique feature to the crucifixion of Jesus. His side was pierced. And so what John is reporting for us is he's also going to show them not just his hands, but he's showing them his side. These are to certify that this is the Jesus that was on the cross. This is the Jesus that died three days ago. This is the body of that Jesus who died, who is now also raised again. And so John is very concerned that we certify that the crucified Jesus is the same as the risen Jesus. The crucified Jesus is the same as the resurrected Lord that we're meeting in this passage. And so we see it's the same body, but we also see it's something new. It passes through clothes. It passes through doors. It can veil itself from people's sight so that they, they don't recognize him if he does, until the time he wants them to recognize him. It's the same body, but it's also a new body. And then he moves on and he says, peace be with you. And he says that three times in the text, which means it's probably important. And so multiple levels to this peace be with you. And so they're afraid. So what do you say to people who are afraid? Peace. It's, you know, it's okay. But also peace be with you is the common Jewish greeting all the way up until this day. They still say shalom to one another. And it was the common greeting of that day. And so it would just be what you said. It's like their hello and their goodbye. Shalom. And so Jesus is showing up. Hello. Shalom. Peace. Now the Hebrew concept of peace was the idea of wholeness. It was the idea of well-being. And it wasn't just this idea of internal tranquility or internal settled emotions. It was that the whole, every component of your life, every part of your life was whole and full and flourishing. That was the Hebrew concept of peace. And so it was for people that every area, like peace be to you, would be every area of your life be whole and full and flourishing. But it would also be for families and communities Peace. And then the ultimate hope of the Messiah was what? That when Messiah shows back up on the scene, he will have a kingdom of peace that has no end. That every area of the world and every area of the community and every area of relationship and every area of your life would be whole and full and flourishing. And so that makes sense. That's their greeting to one another. 
peace, broken being whole, well-being, everything flourishing about your life and your relationships. But you know what? There's another reason that Jesus says this, because what you're going to see throughout this account is everything that Jesus promised over the past few days is what happens when Jesus shows back up on the scene. And so in John 14, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives it, do I give it. And so what did Jesus promise uh, as he was having this discourse with his, just his disciples in the upper room? He promised, I'm going to give you a peace, and it's not going to be the kind of peace the world gives that goes up and down with circumstances so that you're on this roller coaster of emotions and things are good and then things are bad and things are frustrating and things are joyful and things are celebrating and things are mourning. No, that I'm going to give you something that's deeper and more lasting and it can't be taken away. It's going to be the peace that's attached to me. And he says the same thing in chapter 16. In this world, you'll have tribulation. But in me, you'll have peace. And so he's declaring to them what he promised to them on the other side of the cross. Uh, Now that the resurrection has happened, he's giving to them what he promised. I'm going to make you whole. I'm not going to make you whole and flourishing because your circumstances got better. The disciples' circumstances never get better. And they all die untimely deaths at the hands of officials. But they die with the peace of Jesus over their life. And so when Jesus says three times in this text, peace, he's declaring to them, I'm giving you a peace that will last through your troubles, through your death, and for all eternity. And he says, peace be to you. And when he said this, he shows them his hands and he shows them his side. Again, certifying that these unique wounds that belong to my body are still there. And you can, you can be sure that it, it's still me. And then what's the response? Because everything changes when people meet Jesus. And that's one of the key ways that John reports uh, his encounter. Everything changes when Jesus comes on the scene. For Mary, she's in weeping and mourning and agonizing. And she sees Jesus and then she just falls all over him. And she goes and tells about him. And for the disciples, they're locked away for fear of the Jews. Now the fear isn't going to go completely away until the Holy Spirit comes on them. And so the resurrection and the Holy Spirit is going to transform them. But for a moment... Their fear turns into joy. And that's the joy that was promised to them. In John 16, truly I say to you, you will weep and you will lament, but the world will rejoice. But take heart because your sorrow will turn into joy. You're going to weep at the cross and rejoice at the resurrection. And now the resurrection's happened. And what do they do? They rejoice. They're glad. And this is one of the key themes of the entire scriptures, right? In the Old Testament, serve the Lord with gladness. In the Old Testament, in your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In the life of Jesus, abide in me. You'll bear much fruit. I say these things that your joy may be full. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So from old to new, centering on the resurrection of Jesus. Joy is the natural byproduct of encountering Jesus Christ. Now, if you aim for joy, you'll miss it every time. If you aim for Jesus, then you will find the natural byproduct of drawing near to Jesus, the natural byproduct of encountering him, is that joy we so desperately long for in other things. They were glad when they saw the Lord. They rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And it was the same joy that he had promised them all that time ago. See, when you encounter Jesus, everything changes. 
Doesn't mean your circumstances change, right? Because Paul said we are sorrowful, but always rejoicing. And so with this text, I want to press on you and I want to press on me two things. When people encounter Jesus, everything changes. Have you encountered Jesus in a saving way that changed you? That changed what you desire? That changed what you long for? That changed how you think and how you act? Have you encountered Jesus and did it change you? Not perfectly all at once. No, there's a lifetime of that. But did it make a difference? Because every faith that can truly save you for eternity is a faith that will shape you in this life today. It will change you. You don't meet the resurrected Jesus and treasure the resurrected Jesus and it not change you. Has he changed you? And then I want to invite you. I want you to look back over your life. What are some of those moments that Jesus encountered you? And it moved you to that next level of transformation, that next level of change, that next level of discipleship. Because when you encounter Jesus, everything changes. And then I want to ask you the last question of that. How have you changed lately? How have I changed lately? It's so easy for me to tell 20-year-old stories of transformation. It's so easy for me to share 15-year-old stories of calling. But what's today's story of Jesus' faithfulness? What's today's story of Jesus' change? What's today's story of I'm different today? What are those for you? Because when we encounter Jesus, everything changes. Then we're never meant to stop encountering Jesus. And then how's the joy meter of your life? Because an encounter with Jesus that changes you has this byproduct called joy. And so what's the joy meter of your life look like? See, I think joy functions as one of those warning lights on the dashboard of our soul that when it begins to go to zero, we realize that something is missing and something is lacking and something is disconnected. And it's not a call to go pursue happiness. It's not a call for distraction. It's not a call to buy a car. It's a, car to, it's a cause to say, God, please return me. The joy of my salvation, as David cried. It's a call to say, I can't control this, but I'm going to pursue and I'm going to stare and I'm going to pray and I'm going to seek until you return to me the joy of my salvation. So that those little beams of joy can flow back into my life through all the junk that's going on. How's the joy meter of your life? And then he moves on to the great commission that we find in John. And I love John's commission probably You know, I don't think you can say it's better than the Great Commission, can you? But, like, it's up there, and in my mind it may be even a little better. At least it certainly fills out the Great Commission uh, more. Because, like we started with, it's so easy to compartmentalize our lives. To live with, like, the Jesus box and the church box, but then there's also all these other boxes. And they're all important. And, yeah, I hope to have integrity. I hope to be a good person in all those areas. But, you know, I kind of keep them separate. And what I believe John's commission does so well is it forces down the barriers that, that, of those compartments and makes it all blend into one. And so let's look at it. I want to give you the 30,000 view, foot view first because there's some hard interpretive things as we get into this. So the 30,000 foot view is this. Jesus sent his disciples and Jesus sends you empowered by the Holy Spirit to declare a message of forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God. See that in the text? Jesus sends his disciples and Jesus sends you, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to declare a message of forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God. And now let's dive in because, again, there's going to be some murky things, but 
But that's what I think John is communicating. That's what John's aiming at for this. All right, and so it says, as the Father has sent me. Now, throughout the book of John, we have seen over and over again the sentness of Jesus, the sentness of Jesus, right? I speak the words of him who sent me. I do the works of him who sent me. I am calling for faith in the one who sent me. Right, and so sent, 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 over and over throughout John. And it's essential that we see that in the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and the teaching and words of Jesus, this model for what mission looks like. Now, we could overdo that, right? Because we're not Jesus and there are things that distinctly belong to Jesus alone. But if we take some of those out, and that's a few, and look at the life of Jesus and how he lived and how he spoke and how he interacted and how he related, we're seeing a picture of what it should be like for us to live on mission. Because as the Father has sent me, what the sentness of the Son looks like in his life is what it should look like in us. Even so, the exact same way, that's how I'm sending you. And so, what does it look like? Jesus has declared the Son of God, filled with the Holy Spirit. He's declared the dearly loved Son. He receives the Holy Spirit. He lives in dependence on God for his words and for his works. He declares the very words of God, especially the words of God that have to do with salvation, right? Um, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I did not come to condemn the world, but through me the world might be saved. The world was already condemned. I came to rescue it, right? These are the words of Jesus. This is the message of Jesus. He is inviting faith out of the people he encounters. While displaying, this is what God is like. His whole purpose in life is, we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father. No one has seen God at any time. The Son has made him known. God has made him known. And so we're seeing what God is like, and we're hearing uh, the declaration of who God is and what God has done. Right? And so a life that is sent and a message of salvation. And that's the way he's sending you. You are declared, dearly loved children of God. I am going to my father and your father. Who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Right? When I go, it's better that I go away because when I go, I'm going to send another helper like me. And he's going to lead you into all the truth. He's going to point you to my glory. Right? There's this whole section on the Holy Spirit in the upper room discourse. You're a dearly loved child, empowered by the Holy Spirit to abide in Jesus, to be made like Jesus, to live in dependence on Jesus. To then go declare the message of Jesus to the world. To declare the very words of God, not that you make up, but that he wrote down. And those words primarily center around a saving relationship to him. Who Jesus is. What Jesus did so that you can believe him and you can follow him. And so the way that Jesus was sent is the way that you have been sent as well. You have a message for your neighbors. You have a message for the nations. You have a message for your co-workers. You have a message for your kids. You have a message for the people that you play ball with. You have a message for the people you go to school with. You have a word that saves. And the way, I, the way that Jesus was sent is the way that you are now sent. But you don't just have a message. 
You have a life. You have a life that is meant to show the world, this is what it looks like when God invades a person. This is what it it looks like when God restores a person. This is what it looks like when God saves a person. Let me show you what God is like. Let me show you the goodness of his kingdom. Let me show you what it looks like when he's changing someone. So that every area of your life shows what Jesus is like. So that when you open up your mouth and declare the goodness and the kindness and the graciousness of your loving Savior. It's all one message. It's all one message. You see, the mission of Jesus was never meant to be limited to a mission trip. And I hope you go on a mission trip. I hope you go on a lifetime full of mission trips. The mission of Jesus was never meant to be limited to church outreach projects. Though I hope you do church outreach projects. The mission of Jesus was never meant to be confined to come to church with us or watch church with us on a live stream. Though I hope you come to church with us and I hope you watch a live stream with us. It was never meant to be limited to that. It was always meant to be everyday rhythms of your life. Every relationship of your life is a context for your relationship with Jesus to walk into the life of another person. Jesus never had a segment between, I'm sorry, I'm having time with the Father now. I can't deal with you. I'm dealing with my disciples now. I can't restore you. Every area of his life was interwoven, and it's meant to be every area of our life as well. And so, there are people throughout this community who have never seen and heard an authentic witness to Jesus Christ. And there are people all over the globe who have never seen and never heard an authentic witness to Jesus Christ. Now we think, yeah, that's true over there. Let's send missionaries. We have a community full of churches, but how many people that have met Christians have never met little Christs? People who live their lives to restore things that are broken. Who live their lives to sacrifice and show what God is like. Who open up vulnerably and transparently that, yes, I'm somebody Jesus putting pieces back together, but there's some pieces in place. Who show what it's like to grieve with hope. Who show what it's like to have been comforted in affliction so that they can comfort others in afflictions. Who have a ministry of mercy that restores flourishing into people's lives. Or a ministry of mercy that gives comfort when life doesn't get put back together the way we had hoped. How many people in this community have had an authentic encounter, an authentic witness, and an authentic message from God? And that's not to say you're perfect. That's to say you are a work in process who has integrated your relationship to Jesus uh, into your relationships with others. As the Father has sent the Son, the Son is sending us to show what God is like and to share the message that will save them. And then he says, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, just for the sake of time, I'll tell you there's 800 interpretations interpretations of this. It's a very difficult passage, and I will not say that I have the exact right interpretation because there's troubles and and great points to four or five or six different interpretations. Uh, So with that caveat, what I'm going to say is I don't believe that this is the direct giving of the Holy Spirit right here in this moment. Pentecost is 50 days away. John is at Pentecost, so I'm pretty sure he didn't get it confused. Um, that, that he has just written a few chapters ago. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come when I go. 
And so, like, John didn't, like, all of a sudden get amnesia and, like, oh, yeah, I did just write that. So did, did I contradict myself? No. Like, he, he knows all that. The church knows about Pentecost. John knows about Pentecost. John knows what he just wrote a few pages ago. And so I don't think he's, he has he messed up and said, oh, yeah, whoops, there were two Pentecosts. All right? So I'm going to say this is not the direct giving. And this would be in line with John. You remember when it was uh, approaching his arrest, Jesus says, my hour has come. He didn't die for about 10 days. Right. And so John very often time and Jesus very often time speaks in present tense about something that is about to happen pretty imminently. So here's why I think this is here. I think it is a symbolic living parable that allows John to connect the cross of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus with the ascension of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit. So it allows him to tie together all these themes that he has been talking about throughout the book without having to like erase, oh yeah, by the way, there's this Pentecost thing. I hope I didn't mess that up too much. And so he's, he's giving this symbol, this living parable of the Spirit that is coming. And I think he does that for another reason, not just to tie the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the Spirit, and the ascension together. So that they're all united together. He also does it so that he can tie the spirit of Jesus to the mission of Jesus. Right? As I'm sent, so I send you. Here's the spirit. He's essential. And then this message of forgiveness of sins. And so that's what I think he is up to in this text. And again, if you want to dive in, there's pages and pages and pages and pages of commentary for you to wrestle with. This is not an easy passage. I want to acknowledge that. But I do want to say that's what I think he's up to. And it fits with the flow of John. So with that, he says one more hard thing, right? If you disciples, if you apostles forgive the sins of anyone, they're forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness, it's withheld. And you're like, what? You just died and rose again for the sins of mankind, right? He died for our sins. According to the scripture, he rose again on the third day. That's all that's happened. And now all of a sudden the disciples get to say forgiven, not forgiven, forgiven, not forgiven. No, put this thing back together. You are sent You have the power of the Holy Spirit to transform your life, give dependence on God, and add power to your message. And when that message goes out, how are people going to respond? Some are going to believe. And they will receive the forgiveness of God. And you will be able to pronounce that over them. Your salvation includes the forgiveness of sins, the adoption of the Father. But if they reject the message of the gospel, if they reject your life and your witness, then what do you declare? Forgiveness has been withheld from you. Because that's the only message given among men by which we must be saved. And so it all fits together, even though it's kind of muddy and complex, that we are sent people with a message of salvation empowered by the Holy Spirit. And everyone who believes, they will receive the forgiveness of God. And though their sins be as scarlet, they'll be washed white as snow. But if they do not believe, they're condemned already, as Jesus told us throughout this book. There's one more step we have to take, and it's Thomas's uh, doubt and his profound declaration. And so as we get to this, I want to start with take it easy on Thomas, right? Mary Magdalene just came in and was like, we saw the Lord, and they thought it was an idle tale. All of them are unbelievers. All of them are doubters. And then Thomas, all he asks for is like exactly what the other disciples just got. They got to see the hands. They got to see the side. He did it. He wasn't there. And so take it easy. I know he's doubting Thomas, but you know what? You're doubting, I'll say it for me, I'm doubting Chris. You're doubting fill in your name. It's all of us. 
They were all the doubting disciples, and we are all doubting disciples until Jesus comes to us, right? And so with that in mind, you know, Thomas responds. We've seen the Lord, and he's like, I will never believe unless I touch it and put my hand in his side. I'll never believe it. And Jesus knows exactly what he says. And eight days later, he shows up, which would again be the next Sunday because the Jewish way of accounting would include the day they were on. So it would include Sunday till the next Sunday. So they're back on Sunday. They're back on the first day of the week. What are they doing? And this is another reason I don't think he gave the Holy Spirit. They're locked up again. They're fearful again. They're not transformed. They go fishing in the next chapter thinking this whole thing is over. They've seen Jesus, but they still go fishing like everything's done. Right? They haven't been changed yet, but they're going to be. Completely changed yet, I should say, but they're going to be. And Jesus shows up and he's like, don't, don't disbelieve, believe. And the defining declaration of the book of John that he has been aiming for from start to finish is now made by doubting Thomas. My Lord, my Messiah, my Christ, and my God. How did John start his book off? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. How does he end his book? With someone seeing Jesus and declaring exactly what he said from the beginning. My God. Chapter 5. They will honor the Son the way they honor the Father. And how does he end? My Lord. And my God. It is the saving declaration that John has been aiming for to acknowledge the saving Messiah work of Jesus and to acknowledge the divinity, the godness of Jesus. And by believing and acknowledging and declaring that, you will find eternal life. And that's what Thomas, the guy that gets all our little comments that we should direct ourselves to. But he makes the final defining declaration in the book of John that John's been aiming for all along, that Jesus has been aiming for all along. And then Jesus transitions because there's going to be a whole bajillions of people who never see Jesus physically risen. And so he he commends the faith of Thomas. He didn't rebuke him. You, You believe now that you see, but there's this special blessing out there. And it's, it's this special blessing for those who will believe, even though they will never see. It's the same blessing that Peter picks up on in, in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he says, Though you have not seen him, you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Right? There's this joy, this blessing that's attached to faith. And that's how, that's how John ties together this last thing of Jesus, right? You, blessed are those who believe but do not see. And then John's like, that's who I'm writing this book for. I'm writing my book for the believer so that there can be believers who have never seen. I'm an eyewitness of these things because I want to invite you to believe. And so he says, now, which links himself to that last statement of believing but not seeing. Now, the disciples saw a bunch more miracles than this. But there's a specific purpose for the miracles I did include, the signs that I did include. You know what that purpose is? So that you that will never meet Jesus physically on this earth resurrected, that you will be the ones who are blessed by believing. That's been John's whole purpose. Forty-five messages now that have been aimed at your faith, aimed at your saving faith, aimed at a restored, living, vibrant faith, because it's declared, here's Jesus, here's what he's like, here's what he's done, here's what he's said. Now, 
I want to give you the seven signs of John because those have been moving to this point. I'll go through them quickly. The first one, chapter 2, water into wine. And the disciples saw his glory and they believed. The second one, we find in chapter 4, the official's son is healed. But the Jews believe only because of the sign. That's what John tells us. But the official, the father, he believes because he heard the word of Jesus. Just like the Samaritans believe because they heard the word of Jesus, while the Jews only believe for signs. And then the third one in chapter 5, there's the paralytic man. There's no faith in the paralytic man. He goes and turns Jesus into the authorities. The fourth one in chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and then he rebukes them because they follow him, not because they saw the sign, but because their stomachs were full of bread. Now, I'm going to say this is not the fifth sign, but I may give it to you because it's possibly the fifth sign. Chapter 6, Jesus walks on water, but there's no response. All right, so the fifth slash sixth sign, chapter 9 and 10, there's the blind man who receives his sight, who stands under the grilling, uh, the grilling accusations of the council, about to get kicked out of the synagogue, uh, stands up and he says, I don't know. Do you want to follow him? Oh, you're a follower of him now. I don't know, but all I know is this. I was blind, but now I see. And then Jesus comes and he makes his faith whole. And all of that was to illustrate the spiritual blindness of all these people who thought they were seeing so well. And then the sixth slash seventh sign, the rising of Lazarus. And many people believe in that sign. So many believe that they want to kill Lazarus because as long as Lazarus is alive, people will see his his living body and believe. What I think is the seventh sign, it's not just me, by the way. The defining sign of the book of John is the sign that you see in this chapter that you're reading right now. The defining sign of John that calls you to a final saving faith is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who Mary sees and clings. The the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who John sees in empty grave clothes and believes. The, The one that the disciples see and they rejoice. And the one that Thomas sees and he declares, this is my Lord. This is the Christ. This is my God. And he'll be yours as well. And that is the final sign that leads John to say, I've written these signs. I've written this book for a very specific purpose. That you will believe, that you will know exactly who Jesus is, and you will believe that he is the Christ. And when you believe that he is the Christ, and he is the only way to the Father, and he's opened a way for all to come to the Father, that you will have what John has promised 18 times in this book to this point. You'll find eternal life in his name. 18 times a life that is full now, a life that is abundant now, a life that is rich now, a life that is whole now, a life that has an eternal quality now, and a life that will be forever then. If you'll believe it, and that's been John's pleading for 20 chapters now, believe. See the signs and believe, but don't believe because of the signs. Believe because he is who he says he is. And that's my pleading to you. And that's my pleading to you out there. See the Jesus described and declared to you in this text that Thomas declares upon seeing and believe. Believe. Believe in a way that is a saving faith that will change you and change your life and keep on changing you until the end. Return. Return to a living faith in this living Messiah. A few practical things as we wrap up. Believe as I've just challenged you. And then believe again. For 45 messages now, believe. 
And if you need to go back and listen, listen until that saving faith awakens in your heart and you believe that he is the Christ. You believe that he's the son of God. Listen again so that faith becomes alive again in your life. The second one, stare at Jesus. He is declared Lord and he is declared God. He is the crucified and risen Messiah. He is a healer. He is compassionate on the lowly. He preaches the gospel to the poor. He knows all things. He restores outcast women beside wells. And he's aiming at your peace, your restoration, your wholeness. Stare at him until it comes. Stare at him until the byproduct of joy begins to glimmer again in your life or grow again in your life. And then the last one, live since. Look at the life of Jesus. Every person he encountered was a person that he wanted to have an encounter with God. He wanted to restore. He wanted to believe. He wanted to make whole. Do you view the people in your life that way? How does God want to use this person to help restore me more? How does he want to use me in this person's life to make them more whole? To help put them back together, to cooperate with his work of grace in their lives, to make them more whole. That's for us in this room. And that's for us as we go out, as we meet people in the checkout line, as we meet people at work. How does God want to walk into their lives as we meet people at school? How does God want to work in their lives to make them whole again? Saving work or a growing and restoring work. You're sent for that purpose. You're sent for that purpose. It's not a compartment of your life. It is your life. And so, look, the world's going to reopen soon. Hopefully, some way. What kind of person is going to come out of this? Is it going to be a person, like, for us, that has encountered more of Jesus and longs for Jesus and community again? Is it going to be a, purpose, a person who walks out of isolation and into a new set of relationships or renewed relationships and says, I want the Jesus that is in me to be infused into these relationships too? Don't compartmentalize. That's your calling. That's your commission. That's your joy. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask for joy to be restored to us in the salvation we have in Christ. We ask for the work of change to continue from one degree to the next degree to the next degree until Jesus comes. Would you move it forward again from us being together? And God, we're filled with brokenness and we're surrounded with brokenness. Would you give us life in the Spirit, life in you, so that pieces get put back together because we're around. And God, we're surrounded by lostness. We're surrounded by people who have seen Christians, but they need to see Christ. And so God, would you let our lives show him off a little more? Yes, we're in process, but yes, show what he's like. God, would you do that? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. With that, we'd invite you to stand and sing with us. If you're on the stream, you're welcome to join in uh, or sign off now, and then they'll dismiss at the end from there.